there's, um, there's three things that Jesus said that I want to sort of unpack with us this morning. And, uh, but, but before we do that, I just wanted to sort of focus a, a bit on the struggles and the temptations and the surprises that we find ourselves experiencing in life. You know, have you noticed how those, there's a real pattern there? Um, certainly for me, it's just a repeating cycle. Um, it can happen in different ways, but God seems to be developing me, and I think he develops us more through our struggles and through our battles with the temptations we face. Uh, and then he often surprises us by getting involved, and then we can break into a new freedom. And I, that's just been going on and on um, over the years for me. Some of them repeat, and others have a real sense of freedom. And I think for me, the hope is that these three things that Jesus said are three little keys, three little instructions that will help us um, allow God to, to help us become more free. And in order to set the background, I just want to briefly look at some of the, the struggles, the temptations, and the surprises that Jesus and his family, and in fact, even, even the, his people, the Israelites, faced before they were set free. You see, there was that backdrop I'll unpack in a minute, but let me share personally some things that happened over the last six weeks for Helen and I. On a Sunday evening six weeks ago, in July, we were at the evening service here, and Helen went home early, and then I got a message to say that we'd been burgled and that the men are still in the house. And I, I formed this picture in my mind that Helen's in the house and she's sneaked off into a closet and phoned me to whisper. And, and I tried to phone, and, and so I dashed to my car. And in the process of that, as I opened the door, my phone fell and cracked and thought, great. I get to the house, and thankfully Helen hadn't gone in. She called the police, but there'd been signs that the, the men were still actually in the house. And... Um, and the, the police had arrived by this point, and they'd surrounded the, the house front and back, and, and there was a side door. So, but because there might be guys still in there, they, um, they waited for the police dog handler to arrive. And our dog, our little dog Eddie, was at the front window. He'd been bundled and kicked into the front room and, and shut away. So we, di we didn't dare go in yet. And then when the dog handler did arrive, it was quite a scary moment. Yeah. Even the police that were on duty, they all sort of backed off as the dog approached, and he was about to let the dog run into the house. So they let us go in and get Eddie out first, thankfully. Um, but this, it was, the whole thing was quite dramatic, and as part of me was really hoping that the dog would come out with a piece of uh, one of the intruders in his mouth. And uh, so I knew that wasn't a good attitude I had at that moment. Um, and part, you know... The whole thing, they'd gone. They'd, they'd escaped, run out the back door when they heard Helen call the police and uh, as she was standing outside. You know, the, but the whole thing meant that we'd just come back from a couple of weeks um, where we'd been living out of suitcases. We'd had a conference to go to and we had a little bit of holiday. 
And, I, you know, so it just triggered the start of a load of struggles and, I, and I, you know, some, some of the temptations I faced on that journey and then some of the surprises as well. And I think part of it for me, it started with the fact that that night, you know, the house was a mess, covered in glass, things had been taken, um, there were all sorts of hassles and I had to wait up till two in the morning that night be- before um, the guys arrived to board up the windows and the door had been smashed in. So the whole thing was just irritating, frustrating. And then um, Helen sat in the kitchen the following morning with the two detectives and completely unrelated to the burglary, water starts coming through the kitchen ceiling. So, whoa, what's happening now? And a few days later, our fridge and freezer packed up and it was like, it just was blow after blow. And the thing in all of that was just a sense in which how am I going to cope with this, Lord? And there was a, an overwhelming sense for me that I was really grateful no one was hurt. And it really helped me start to sort of focus on what was important and what wasn't. I mean, some of the struggles were these. Just that initial shock and frustration that we'd been ransacked and uh, that, that sort of sense of intrusion and just coming to terms with that, and, and the fact that we were at church when this happened. It's not, I couldn't quite get my head around that for a bit. Um, and then just the inconvenience of everything, you know, liaising with insurance companies, the f- electricians, the plumbers, uh, the, the glass fitters, and so on. It, the whole thing was like, ah! Um, and then realizing, this is one of the worst bits, that we hadn't backed up all the photos on the computers that had been stolen. Um, and they'd even smashed in there. We had a little stained glass window on the side of the house, and they'd smashed that in. And think, oh. Um, but no one was hurt, and that was a relief. And as I reflected back on that incident over those next sort of few days, I realized that God had quietly been preparing me without me realizing it. Because when we came back on the, on the Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, I woke up in home thinking, oh, Lord, I'm so glad to be back home, not living out of a suitcase. You know, we've got a great family home. We've raised our kids here. So grateful. We've lived here 18 years. And then the thought just popped into my head, and we haven't been burgled. And I, where did that come from? I'm thinking, well, that's an odd thing to think. Thought nothing more of it. And the next day, I'm sitting reading my book, and uh, I read this chapter, Necessary Suffering. And, you know, you re- I read it as if, well, it's really interesting. Everything's fine at the moment, though. I, don't, I can't really think of anything I'm struggling with. And um, little did I know, of course, what was about to happen. And it's interesting, isn't it, how God sort of uses uh, all sorts of life circumstances and instances to get us ready for, for sort of fine-tuning us or inviting us to go on a journey of deepening our relationship with him along the way. There was a number of surprises in all of this that came out for me. And one that I really, really um, impressed and quietly thrilled about was Helen's determination to renew our home, to sort of reclaim it, you know, rather than being driven out of the trauma of it. I just don't want to move, that was the thing. And um, there was a sense in which I thought, I wonder if this will lead to that now. But also, another surprise was just the the lack of bitterness or resentment that I had towards the burglars. 
Um, obviously, I'd love them to be in court, and, and they, they haven't been, but, but because that wasn't there, that was a surprise. I was thrilled about that. And, and then the way we just, in a very disciplined sort of, we just got on, solved the problems, rather than wallowing in any sort of self-pity, which was a big temptation for me, probably, more than Helen. I think she led the way there. Uh, and then just this focus on let's get the home restored, let's get things so that we can be free to enjoy it again and, and use it to, for family and for friends and just to, to have a home that we can really be thrilled about. And of course, in all of this process, there was the opportunity, this disaster created an opportunity for us to be creative and get things done that, that needed to do or sort of upgrade where something was damaged. Now, and I know that's a sort of a, a personal and, and not really a serious example, but especially for many of us in this room, we'll be facing much more serious struggles, and I realize that. And for others, we may be about to face them, but we're just, they haven't happened yet. And, or we may be dealing with something that doesn't seem that serious, but is actually really disrupting our life or frustrating us and we're irritated that we haven't had the breakthrough we long for you know that sense of longing to see God do something that would set us free that longing for the breakthrough that would see our prayers answered whether it's about ourselves or whether it's about someone else we may know people that we're trying to help and support who are struggling with something and that's the backdrop, really, against which I started reading um, the book of Matthew. And it's an interesting book. It's that, that first book in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible. Because Matthew's purpose was to prove to the Jewish um, people, his Jewish readers, or the Jewish community, that Jesus is the Messiah the promised one who would set them free from all their struggles. And they were living under Roman occupation at the time. So let's just briefly look at the... I'm going to zip through the first few chapters leading up to chapter 6, just give you a very brief summary, and hoping that you will catch that sense of, yes, there, there was a struggle and there were temptations that the Jesus, his family, and the Israelites faced... Very similar for us today, we face constantly struggles, temptations, and, 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 and then we'll move on into how Jesus gives us some keys to help us through those. So in chapter 1, you get the genealogy of Jesus. Now, to the Jewish people, it's really important, and for many years, I've read that or looked at it and thought, how boring. But actually, I read the Bible in a year last year. And I thought, oh, I'll just do it again this year, and I've crashed badly. Um, I've not kept up with that at all, so I feel quite humbled by that. But the point is, when I looked at that genealogy, I started to remember all of the stories that had gone before, and the generations, the struggles that have gone before. Uh, and then you've got the birth of Jesus. You've got the struggle of Joseph trying to believe that Mary's a virgin but pregnant. Um, and then the temptation he had to divorce her. And then the surprise that an angel visited and told him to marry her. And even gave him the name, Jesus, to give the child. And then in chapter 2, you get the, the struggles they, and the temptations and the surprises continue dramatically. You get the wise men from the east 
not only bringing gifts, but they came to worship the new king of the Jews. That was a big surprise for Mary and Joseph to have that confirmation. And then you've got Herod, who wasn't impressed at all by this. Um, he was a ruthless, murderous, deceitful king, appointed to rule over by the Romans to rule over the Jewish people. So Mary and Joseph had to escape. They got warned. They suddenly had to head off um, to Egypt, to a foreign land. They became refugees. They became homeless. And the temptation Joseph must have faced to ignore that warning and the uh, instruction from the angel could have led to disaster. And then sometime later, we don't know how long, um, but the angel, an angel appeared again to him in a dream and told him, Herod's dead, you can go back now. That whole, I mean, it's, it's quite a backdrop. Chapter 3, get John the Baptist, the prophet came, and he really shakes things up with the religious order of the day. You know, the, the authorities really must have been uh, annoyed by him. But he's baptizing people, and then he struggles to baptize Jesus because he doesn't feel worthy. And Jesus asks him, no, we need to do this. And then God speaks, what a surprise, from the heavens. This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Again, this story is building the struggles, the temptations that we battle with. And then there's the surprise as God breaks in and does something. Chapter 4. Jesus is tempted in the desert. He's driven into the desert by the Spirit. We get the word dynamite from the word they use there. So driven means he was really propelled into the desert. I love the way the Bible says he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. He's just so understated. And then he had to encounter the devil and, and grapple and deal with that. And after that, he comes away. And he starts to preach and heal the sick. Chapter 5, and, and here's the crunch now. Chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And this runs right to the end of chapter 7, where Jesus just lays out his call to moral and ethical living. And the standards of his teaching, they're impossible for us to meet in our own strength. Many people have tried and failed to live up to the teachings of Jesus. We just can't do it there's just too many struggles along the way too much failure and I know coming from a Catholic background I've tried before I was a Christian to to live by that code and you just live with constant failure we weren't meant to do it in our own strength that's the good news Jesus invites us to do this in his strength but we need to invite him into our lives we need to entrust our lives to him now, chapter 6, and this is where the three instructions, um, where we, we get them in chapter 6. And they come immediately after Jesus has taught us how to pray. And the first thing that he instructs us, the first thing that's a challenge is this. Forgive others rather than be unforgiven by God. Let me read Matthew 14 and 15. For if you forgive others... When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. That's quite a stark, blunt instruction. And I think we sort of almost tend to see that as an optional extra. We like being forgiven, but we're not necessarily going to release forgiveness that easily ourselves. 
And one of the reasons I was able to forgive these burglars was because I didn't know who they were. Now, if I met them, I might really struggle with that. I hope not, but I might. And I realized that forgiving can be much more difficult when we know who the people are who've wronged us. And Nelson Mandela said this, there is no easy walk to freedom anywhere. And many of us will have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death again and again before we reach the mountaintop of our desires. You see, Mandela's life was quite interesting in this he had to overcome adversity. He had to embrace the challenges and the struggles that just seemed unsolvable and insurmountable facing that apartheid system in South Africa. But he showed us that mastery of life, um, it's not an absence of problems. You know, if we have no struggles in life, that's not how we learn to live. It's the mastering of problems. It's learning how to deal with the, the, the struggles that's important. And he certainly had his fair share of them. The way he chose to respond to that injustice of apartheid, the brutality of those who propped it up, um, showed the world that life can be hard, but we don't have to grow hard. Life can be hard, but we don't have to become hard-hearted ourselves. That's the message that I took from his life. We may not be able to choose our circumstances, but we always have a choice. It may not feel like it, but we always have a choice. In whether we sort of succumb to self-pity or being a victim or despair, those are choices. Sometimes we allow them to happen and we think, oh, I couldn't help it. Actually, they are choices. And that, that is a bit of a challenge that we all face. And we'll face it again and again. Knowing that helps us. You know, he taught us about the resilience of the human spirit in the face of heartache and hardship. And I think Jesus recognizes that we face hardship and, hardsh and, yeah, and heartache. But actually, a way forward is to forgive. It doesn't make sense by the world's standards. You see, we can choose what to do rather than saying, I can't do anything. Mandela said this, as I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. You know, and for many of us in the shadow of our hurt, forgiveness can feel like a decision we're making to reward those that have hurt us. And that's why it can be so difficult. The very people who've hurt us seem to get away with it. In fact, it seems like another cost that we have to, to bear. Malala Yousafzai was the, uh, the Pakistani schoolgirl who defied threats of the Taliban as she continued to campaign for the right to education. And she survived being shot in the head by the Taliban. She was in a critical condition and her father prepared for her funeral. Dread to think how he must have felt. 
However, she came out of a coma and responded to treatment has, and has become a global advocate for human rights, for women's rights, and for the right to education. And she was awarded uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, even though she's still very young. You see, in these verses in Matthew 14 15, for if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. You see, here, God is reminding us, no matter how dramatic or difficult um, the situation we face, if one of my daughters had been shot in the head, I dread to think how I would be feeling and responding. But God is reminding us in this, look, I've paid a cost. I've paid a price. I want you to remember that. Don't just focus on what you are experiencing. Andy Stanley is a, a sort of a pastor, and, and he's written a book called Enemies of the Heart. Um, and uh, you know, and he, this helps us, there's a, a chapter in there, it really helps us if we're struggling to forgive. And I guess many of us will struggle to forgive but he shows us that there's a thing called the cycle of forgiveness and when we're reluctant to forgive it's usually because our focus is what has been done to us that's what we're focused on rather than what has been done for us and that's what God wants us to shift our focus to what has been done for us you see our attitudes are changed when we realize um, that there's a different perspective. When we realize that God, what God has done for us in Jesus, his son, being nailed to a cross, dying so that we can have eternity, so that we can have forgiveness of sins, so that we can have a relationship with our heavenly father, so that we can become part of his family. That's the good news that God wants us to remember in the midst of our struggles. When we're tempted to to act negatively or to, to spiral down. He wants us to connect to him and remember. You see, forgiveness is a gift we decide to give in spite of our circumstances. And that's a challenge. It may not seem just or fair. And that's because it's often not. But it is the way to freedom. And there are four phases to complete the cycle of forgiveness. Um, and this is more like a process, and we can get stuck on any one of these. Um, but they're each essential for us to move into healthy forgiveness and freedom. And the first one is just to identify. Identify who we are angry with. You see, forgiveness isn't just forgetting a debt. Um, it's a decision to cancel a debt, and we need to know who we're canceling that debt for. And the second one is, is determine what that person or those people owe us. Because we need to be specific, because if we're not specific, if we don't know why we need to forgive, it's very difficult for that forgiveness to be heartfelt. And then the third part of this process is, we have to cancel the debt. So after we've identified a debt, we must cancel it. And often we can get stuck here because we know who and we know what, why we need to forgive them. And then we just sort of park it and think, I'm just not ready now. And then, and then it has a corrosive effect on us 
slowly, without us even noticing it, draining life out of us. It, becomes, it can become an obsession. But if we can face this, and Jesus wants us to, if we can cancel the debt, and it may help to do something like actually physically writing it out and then burning it or doing something that would help you, no, no, I've cancelled that. And then the, the final thing is to dismiss the case or to release them. And again, the problem here is that we can be tempted not to dismiss it. We've cancelled it, but we've sort of kept the right to revisit it and maybe reopen the case if there's more information that comes our way. What Jesus wants us to do is cancel it. Just as he's cancelled our debts, what he's done for us, we did not deserve. If we can learn to cancel the debts of others, even though they don't deserve it, we can be set free, we can move into freedom. And this is difficult because our feelings don't automatically follow our decisions to forgive. And I've had moments of frustrations over the last six months when things are not happening quickly and I just think, oh, Lord, why did, why did you let that happen? I think, no, it's not why. It's, Lord, what is it you wanted me to learn through this? And we may have regrets. It, it would all, almost be easier if we could just forgive and forget. But often we can't. And so we may have regrets that we have to grapple with. But that's all part of the healthy process of cancelling and dismissing. And keep saying, no, I've let that go. Malala said this, my only regret, regret was that I hadn't had a chance to speak to them before they shot me. Now, they never, now they'd never hear what I had to say. I didn't even think a single bad thought about the man who shot me. I had no thoughts of revenge. I just wanted to go back to SWAT to study. I wanted to go home. Now, the thing here is, Nelson Mandela and Malala, they're inspirational examples of people who've been able to forgive. But obviously, for many of us, it's not that easy and it's not that straightforward. And I, I have a sense that as I prepare for this, Jesus wants to help us, for those of us who are struggling in different ways with forgiveness. You know, are there people that we need to forgive? And my, my prayerful hope has been that as I do this, you may start to focus and remember who you need to forgive. You may have got stuck on that cycle. You've only gone so far. You think you've forgiven, but you've not finished it. And it keeps bothering you. Are the people we need to forgive? Or maybe there is a specific person or a specific group and, and it's just you're not sure. Or you need to become more clear. You just blocked it out rather than dealing with it. Or are we ready to complete the cycle of forgiveness today? Or at least start it? Or may, maybe identify that we're stuck. You know, is it identifying, determining what they've done or cancelling the debt or dismissing the case are we stuck somewhere so that's the first thing that I felt Jesus wants us to, to focus on and then he goes on immediately in verse 16 to focus on on this the challenge is to fast in secret rather than feast all the time 
Let me read these verses. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I've been a bit preoccupied this morning going over and just trying to really be ready for this. So I just had a banana for breakfast. And in the break, I walked past the donuts. Do you know, they look so good. And, uh, and as I reached for one, I thought, this is going to be a bit difficult talking about fasting if I've just had a donut. So I managed to fight off that temptation. And the thing is, I do not want to um, spoil anybody's enjoyment of food. It's a gift or, or drink. It's a gift from God, and he wants us to enjoy them. But he does expect us to fast. And while we might say, well, I'm going to fast from watching television, or I'm going to fast from something else, that's all good. But ultimately, he does want us to fast in some way with food in particular. And the reason for that is that we will never develop healthy self-discipline, healthy self-control, if we cannot control what we are eating to some extent. And I know that for a fact because I've struggled in this area for many years. And it's, it's only been the last sort of year and a half or so that I've really started to, to have breakthrough in this area. But please, I do not want anyone to feel sort of um, judged in any way but it is a truth that Jesus asks us he's, when you fast. It's not if you feel like it or if you decide to, it's when. And I, and I know that if we're struggling with some other area of our life, there might be a, a behavior that's a repeating negative um, behavior in our life that we just can't seem to, to get to grips with. You know, or it may even be an addiction, but learning to fast regularly in an intentional, quiet, secret way is a first step that you may find, well, I've certainly seen it, that we start to get empowered by God to be able to deal with the things that we've struggled with and the temptations that plague us. And it can really lead to, to great breakthroughs and surprises in all sorts of ways. And when God sees that we're serious about this, um, that we want to change and that we quietly and secretly humble ourselves by fasting. He rewards us by a move of his spirit in our lives. And, and really, today is just an invitation to build into our lifestyles a space for regularly fasting in some way. And may I suggest that if you don't do this already, just start small, really small. Maybe, maybe pick a... Once a week, a, a meal that you just miss or a couple of meals. Don't try and do a three-day fast straight off. You know, just start small. Just, just break into this. And, you know, and if that's a problem, it may be you just decide, I'm not going to snack in between meals or I'm going to cut out whatever it is, desserts. But something you can do quietly, secretly, just saying to God, God, I want to grow in self-discipline. You see, the results, they're not instant. But you will be surprised how fasting helps your own 
self-development, you know, when it comes to discipline and control. And it helps you, us battle those temptations that we face in other areas of our lives. And remember, God promises to reward us if we fast secretly. I was, I was going to mention something really blatantly obvious, but it's not really impacted me until I've been in my 50s because I've always relied on just exercise. But I've really noticed that if I eat less, I lose weight. It's remarkable. I could highly recommend it. But you sort of have to do it cheerfully or willingly because otherwise the next day you just eat too much chocolate or something stupid like I've done in the past. So I'm not, I don't want you to beat yourself up, be guilty. It's just an invitation. Just an invitation. And the third thing, the final thing that I want to focus on that Jesus said, and again, it just follows on, verse um, Matthew 6, 19. Focus on our future. We're heaven-bound rather than hoarding here on earth. Let me read these verses. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, Jesus knew back then and he knows now just how difficult it is for us in this area. You know, especially in the culture that we live in today, which constantly encourages us to spend and consume, especially on ourselves. You know, and for me, the experience of being burgled forced me to think about what was important. And it surprised me how much of the stuff that got damaged or taken suddenly wasn't important. What was important was that Helen was okay and that, you know, no one was hurt. And suddenly it really brought into sharp focus in the struggle what was important. And I think we can so easily drift off track on that. And it is a risk to be focused on the future when we're trying to get by, you know, today. But it's something that Jesus encourages us to do. And I think the previous two, two steps of, of learning to forgive authentically and then learning to, be, to fast and develop self-discipline tease us up nicely to then be focused on, where am I going, Lord? What is it you've called me to? What is it that you're wanting me to focus on. And that may be individually, certainly for us as a church. It's a healthy thing for us to do, um, to be asking the Lord. And we do it, we seek the Lord regularly. Lord, where is it we're heading? Those vision talks that John does, that we have each year, they're fabulous for that. And I know it takes faith to focus on the fact that in this life, we're just passing through. We're heading for heaven. Jesus is inviting each one of us to look at our priorities. What are we prioritizing in our lives? And he, he wants us to review them, not just today, but regularly. And a great place to start is to look at how we're spending money. That will reveal prior, our priorities, but also how we're spending our time and our energy. You see, we only take a track record with us, a track record of the choices we made in this life when we die. And when we meet God, do we want to be known for the choices we made to live a life that was more giving than taking? 
you know, did we accept what Jesus has done for us and allowed him to really take ownership of our life? Matthew 6, 22 to 24. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be, will be full of light. The thing to notice here is that the Greek for healthy implies generous. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Again, the Greek for unhealthy implies stingy. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, these verses about the eyes, they're often misunderstood. We can easily think that Jesus is telling us to be careful about what we look at. And obviously, there's an element of truth in that. But it's not the main point he's making here. It will be a mistake to think about these verses in that way. Jesus wants us to be careful about what we're giving off. Are we giving off light or darkness through our eyes, through our life? You see, Jesus wants us to focus on being generous rather than being stingy. The struggles we face, you know, the there's a choice. Who's going to be the master that we choose? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, the, the temptation is to believe that we can find security and a safe future by hoarding money and hoarding stuff. But if we're serious about being followers of Jesus, then we need to realize that he wants um, our lives to be shining generosity out to those around us. Wherever we live, work, whatever context. You see, the whole image of a lamp, a lamp exists to shine, to give off, not to consume. It's a lifestyle choice that he rewards in heaven. And the surprise is that we get a foretaste of, the, of that heavenly reward because as we experience choosing to be generous people, there's a freedom and a joy that we experience. And once again, there's a promise attached to this. If we can focus on being generous rather than stingy, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough um, trouble of its own. You see, the promise is that God will give us all that we need. Maybe not all that we want. That wouldn't be good for us anyway. But all that we need. And that we can embrace a life of not worrying. You know, that in, as he takes up more residence in our life, we won't need to worry. At the beginning, we sang, Jesus, we sing for all that you have done for us. And really, that's, that's the major theme. That if we can embrace it, you know, as we go through struggles and trials, if we can make that switch, rather than focus on what the struggle is or what the temptation is, if we can focus on what Jesus has done for us. And of course, the battleground in all of this is the mind, it's the way we think. And one of the, the, the beautiful things that the Holy Spirit does for us is to renew our minds. 
So remember those three things Jesus said. Forgive, fast, and focus. And I'd really encourage you, particularly Matthew 6, but if you get time this coming week to read Matthew chapters 1 to 7, maybe discuss them in small groups or you know, amongst friends, there's so much, uh, just so much there to enrich our lives.